We live in the kind of community where children are allowed to wander around a little bit at the ballpark when their older siblings are playing baseball. Parents, of course, keep an eye on those children, but they also trust that everybody there, friends and other parents and grandparents and even strangers will help make sure those children don't run into danger. And one of the understood duties that all of us at the ballpark take on ourselves when we get there is to shout heads up whenever a foul ball is hit over the backstop fence and headed toward the stands. But heads up isn't always the best thing for us to say, is it? Last spring, I joined a whole field full of spectators in horror as we watched a ball sent over the fence on its way for this sweet little two-year-old who had stopped bounding down the sidewalk to obediently and curiously look up at the night sky because everybody had told him to do just that, heads up. There was nothing anybody could do. No one could get to the child or the ball fast enough. We were frozen in terror and then exhaled a sigh of relief when the ball hit the ground about a foot from the vulnerable child. Maybe it would be better for us to yell duck or take cover. Jesus said there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars And on earth, distress among nations confused by the roaring of the waves and the sea. People will faint from fear and foreboding at what is coming. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when this happens, Jesus says, look up, for your salvation is very near. Look up. Fear and foreboding. Chaos and confusion, danger is on the way, and Jesus wants us to stare it in the face. What does he mean? What sort of invitation to faithfulness is this, that Jesus would ask us to resist that natural urge to hunker down when danger is on the way and instead to stand up and meet it eye to eye? What does he have in mind? Well, it seems at least in part, that Jesus isn't really talking to us. Because we come to church in the daylight. We park our cars on the street or the parking lot. We walk right in the front door. We wear crosses around our necks. We share religious posts on social media because we want people to know that we are Christians. To be a Christian in Northwest Arkansas is to be a part of a community of power and prestige. We are the majority. We enjoy generational influence. We don't have to make a case for ourselves and for our religion like the first Christians do in the face of persecution. They didn't come to church in the daytime but under the cover of darkness because they were afraid they might be killed. They scurried from house to house staggering their arrivals and departures the way a a spy might arrange a clandestine rendezvous. They didn't speak openly about their faith, but communicated through code and secret signs. To those Christians, 
To people who feared what the powers of this world might do to them, Jesus' message that those powers are being shaken, well, that was good news. Because we forget, don't we, that the central message of the Christian faith, just like its Judaic ancestor, is that God comes to rescue those who have no power. When God's people were imprisoned in Egypt, God came and set them free. When God's people were scattered in the Babylonian exile, God came and gathered them back together. When Jesus preached up and down the countryside of first century Palestine, he shared that familiar message of rescue and freedom, and he centered that activity of God on his own ministry The coming of God's reign, he preached, meant an end to the tyranny of Rome. But the empire wasn't the only object of his prophecy of power reversal. Jesus preached of a reign of God that meant riches for the poor and security for the widow and the orphan. A reign of God that meant freedom for those who had been held captive by the hypocrisy of the religious elites, those who had been pushed to the side of religious society, the the, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Those are the ones Jesus called to himself to show the world what God's reign, God's great reversal of power really looks like. Who is it? today in this world that hears that message of powers being shaken and hears it as a message of hope? Who is it among us that raises up their head when they hear that those powers are starting to crumble? Is it not the victim of abuse who for years has had her story silenced by men in positions of power over her and her family? Is it not the mentally ill among us whose care long ago was abdicated by a society that would rather erect monuments to its own success than care for the least among them? Is it not the incarcerated African American who journeyed the path from school to prison, a path appointed for him, by those who refuse to see beyond the label that the dominant society affixes to young men of color? Is it not a caravan of migrant men and women and children who have fled their homes out of fear for what the evils of the drug trade might do to them and who have come to the border of this country hoping for resettlement to be met by tear gas? There will be signs, Jesus says, in the sun and the moon and the stars. Nations will be confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when this happens, stand up. Raise up your head, for your salvation is drawing near. If you're like me, a well-educated, middle-class white man, when you hear the news that God is coming to turn the world upside down, it probably makes you want to duck and cover. It's easy for us to think that these words 
are good news for someone else, for a, a people who need that rescue, a people in another place, another time, another culture, not us. But of course, this isn't good news for someone else. It's good news for us as well. As Suzanne Stoner reminded us in staff meeting this week, when we were looking at this gospel lesson and talking about it, the coming reign of God is good news both for those who are lifted up and for those who are brought down. Why? Because we are prisoners of our own success. We have built for ourselves an insulated life that secures us, we think, from the nightmares that the world so often brings. But will it last? Have we provided for ourselves a security that can carry us through this world and into the next? The hairline cracks in the veneer of our manufactured perfection always catch up with us. Because no one enters the reign of God on her or his own merits, only God's mercy. And the coming reign of God, the great leveling of all humanity, of all creation, reminds us that we too depend on that mercy. That is good news that we are desperate to hear. How do we respond to that good news? What do we make of it? Be on your guard, Jesus says, so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day catch you unexpectedly like a trap. Those of us who live a life of comfort and security too easily forget that the coming reign of God is news that we must anticipate desperately and eagerly. No one enters the reign of God until the powers of this world have given way to the power of God. And that reign, Jesus tells us, is very near. Right around the corner. I tell you, this generation will not pass away, he says, until these things have taken place. Jesus wasn't wrong about that. Jesus wasn't mistaken about God's timing. It is happening all around us in every generation. The powers are being shaken every day. Stand up, Jesus said. Lift up your heads. Will we notice, celebrate, embrace those changes that are as familiar to us as the budding leaves of a fig tree, as commonplace as tomorrow's headlines, will we raise up our heads and interpret those signs for what they are, signs of God's reign, signs of our salvation breaking into the world? Or will we duck our heads and let God's reign pass us by? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.